0: Welcome to the FDH Lounge. Hello, everyone. Welcome to FDH Lounge mini episode 1330. This is FDH managing partner Rick Morris here, and we have one of our favorite recurring guests coming back on with us here. Good friend, longtime guest on the show, Colin Delaney, proprietor of ePolitics.com and veteran of the political wars. And it's a thing, he and I were just laughing about this off here, and looking at the last year. So we did a thing right about the time of the political conventions, we agreed to catch up again right before the election, and it was kind of like, well, God only knows what's going to happen by then, and then you go through everything there, and Trump's, uh, Trump ended up having coronavirus, and all the stuff leading up to the election, and uh, getting saying that we'd get back together after the election here, uh, I mean, again, I think we knew that this wasn't going to be a normal kind of a thing, particularly if Trump lost. But the way that it went, the January 6th deal, on down the line, uh, you know, as the Chinese always say, may you live in interesting times, and we certainly are, and uh, they're always more interesting when we're talking about them with good friend Colin Delaney from ePolitics.com, who is in uh, the eye of a, a very big storm here this week. So uh, thoughts and prayers out there, my man uh, Colin. Not, not easy to be in the Lone Star State these days, but uh, you seem to be hanging in there.
1: Oh, yeah, I'm joining you from the frozen tundra of East Texas, (laughs) where the pine trees are festooned with icicles. Yeah, you know, I grew up here. I'm here for a few months helping my parents out. I grew up here, and uh, I don't remember seeing anything quite like this before. I mean, we've had snowstorms, but not this much, and certainly not this long-lasting. So, talking talk about outlier weather events. I do have one question though. Yes. I mean, you introduced yourself as managing partner. I always thought you were the chairman of the board. Man, <laughs> come on!
0: I am not one of these people here who feels the need to flex. I chose a title that said I'm the kind of guy that doesn't need to flex. I'm too cool for the room, Colin. To, oh god, I understand, man. I, I got the same
1: problem. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> that's my whole thing here too. Anybody that pronounces themselves CEO of a small enterprise, I always think they're trying too hard. I never want to. I never want to look like try too hard guy. I'd rather be too cool for the room guy. So that sounds
1: good to me. Yeah, yeah. try too hard guy is just asking for a fall.
0: Yes, yes, and that's uh, that's something that uh, I'm not looking to have happen. Which uh, segue alert uh, is something that did happen to the 45th president of the United States here during this uh, transition period, and it's interesting because I sort of. I had a thought coming into this, because again, I thought Trump was going to lose, but I thought it was going to be even more decisive than it was going to be. We made our predictions before the election here, and uh, I thought the margin might perhaps be even greater than it was. And it was one of these things of like, I knew in my head I couldn't see him conceding, but if he lost by that much... And, and, and he still ended up losing by a pretty decent amount. I mean, that's pretty much unprecedented. I had the same thought in 2000, which was really weird. I had, like, a weird premonition where I was like, I couldn't see either Bush or Gore conceding to one another. And then it ends up going down to the wire. It ends up being this thing. And then even in the end, when Gore concedes, it's through gritted teeth. Like, well, if the Supreme Court says so. So, you know, I kind of was right about that. Like, neither one of them did the whole, this guy beat me fair and square – Sure enough, 20 years later, Trump, here we are, this guy didn't beat me fair and square. And the consequences that stem from that, uh, leading all the way up to, uh, again, you talk about terrible premonitions, man. I I just remember just praying the morning of January 6th, because it was like, I didn't know what was going to happen, but I'm like... This is the end of the line. Like, today is the day that, you know, whatever. I knew there was going to be this gathering in D.C. I didn't know it was going to go quite the way that it went. But it was this thing. Trump was already increasing the pressure on Pence. And everybody with a brain knew that Pence didn't have the constitutional power to change the outcome here. So just the way everything that had been ratcheted up, you knew there was going to be a reaction. I had a feeling of dread and yet even I had no sense of the magnitude of what was to come.
1: Yeah, I don't think very many people did. I mean, a lot of people will say in hindsight that they did. You know, the, the pe- it was basically the, the the intelligence analysts who were right, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there were people at the FBI regional office that were warning about this. There were journalists who were warning about this. But, you know, I think there's a presumption among political professionals, most political observers, uh, most journalists that, you know, things are going to happen in the way that they always happen, right. that this would have been just another peaceful protest. But it's difficult to overstate how much that lies and disinformation have whipped people into a frenzy. I mean, I'm, I live in Texas, grew up in Texas, and, or I'm, I'm saying in Texas right now, but, um, uh, this idea that the liberals are going to come for your guns and why do you need your guns to keep the liberals from coming for your guns that this idea has been beaten into people's heads and usually it's been beaten into people's heads by people who are trying to make money off of them the nra and it's you know, thieving, corrupt leadership, you know, politicians that are trying to raise money off of them, people who are trying to sell them magazines and bump stocks and things like this, that, um, I, you know, November or January 6th, to me, is, you know, not an inevitable, but almost a natural outcome of a political culture that has lived in a world of lies. And, you know, you and I have talked about this in the past. I've made this argument in the past. You know, when, when you see uh, Republican politicians, you know, refusing to acknowledge the thing that we all saw with our eyes, right? Yeah. I mean, my God, what Bill Barr says this was an honest election. Trump's handpicked attorney general, the Republican secretaries of state and states around the country. I mean, the the vote counting being conducted out in the open, this was probably the most transparent election that ever occurred in the United States. But how many Republican politicians had the courage to say to their own supporters well guess what we lost almost none and um, you know you combine that with Fox News you know Tucker Carlson right now is telling everyone that the reason that Texas is freezing is because of he says windmills but wind turbines right Mm -hmm. well guess what? It's more, uh, a far far more gas plants went offline than wind turbines. Sure. You know, the problems in Texas are from long-term underinvestment in our electrical grid here. You know, the wind turbines, yeah, they weren't equipped with de-icing equipment like they are in the, North, or in the Midwest. But, uh, you know, you have a culture that is built on lies. And eventually that's going to boil over, and that's what happened on January 6th.
0: Well, and it, again, what this comes from is, and as I've said on the show uh, previously, uh, I know how frou frou this sounds, but being an issue-oriented <laughs> guy, oriented guy uh, I don't trust anybody that is a knuckle-dragging culture warrior kind of a guy. I, I consider myself to be uh, well, well, well out to the right, but uh, in a policy way, in a way that I can defend, in a way that doesn't have anything to do with these poopoo-eating, you know, culture wars things here. And it's a thing. I will say this, though. Poo-poo-eating culture war stuff, not exclusive to the right, because there is one exception to the rule, a notable one, from whence you live, when you're saying nobody is saying they want to come for your guns, au contraire. Beto O'Rourke said that. He said the quiet part out loud, Colin Delaney, so it's not like nobody's ever said that.
1: Well, I mean, look, nobody can Nobody we, could. Yes. Yes. No one could take away three hundred plus million guns from Americans. Right. Right. Um, whether you think they should or not, it's just not a realistic possibility. Right. But people who want to raise money from the gullible, right. Right. Pound that home in newsletters, in um, uh, you know, in emails uh you know, and and ads, it's it's ridiculous. And again, it's to make a fast buck. I mean, nobody takes advantage of the Republican electorate more than the people who claim to be speaking for them. Sure. Right? Um uh uh you know the gold bugs selling gold to people after they've just told them that our monetary system is going to collapse yeah. for the hundredth time. You know, it's, it's gross. It really is just disgusting. Well, and, you know, pr- principled friends of mine on the right, you know, who are fundraisers, um, they have to fight. You know, they fight against this. They compete with people who have no scruples. Well,
0: you know, I, this is one of these things, Colin, I, I, I say only quasi-facetiously, Uh, why not me and you, but there ought to be a principled thing from left and right, because ultimately there is a little bit of mirror image stuff on the left as well. Because I agree with what you're saying, that it can never happen because you can't seize 300 to 400 million guns. People on the right should be saying that. People on the left who raise money off of the high hopes of utopianism, of, we will live in a gun-free America! Uh, there needs to be some reality on that side as well. So whether it's me and you joining well, hands to I'm do this, I'm on those
1: lists. Yeah, and that's not what they're saying. Okay, right? why, why
0: don't you? What,
1: I, what, mean, I mean, I am I'm on you know lots of liberal lists, and when they're raising money off of this, it's for things like bans on the sale of new assault weapons. Okay, right? I mean, I, I, there there to me there is no equivalence. I mean, yeah, there are some bad actors on the left. Um, and there are lists that I have unsubscribed from, but to me, that's more from bad list management practices, right? Okay. They're, um, they're, you know, uh, uh, they're using inflammatory language that they don't need to use, you know, and I find, you know, that I find offensive. Well, and left, left Twitter, after, after,
0: after every major shooting out there, left Twitter is pretty much full of, you know, why don't we just go live in a world where there's no guns? Yeah. Let's left
1: Twitter. Well, okay. It doesn't, it doesn't, yeah, I mean, uh, I actually, I wrote a piece in the, uh, in campaigns and elections back in January, three big lessons from the campaign, yeah. and one of them is that social media is not America. True. If left, if left Twitter were the progressive movement or the Democratic Party, you know, Bernie Sanders would be president right now.
0: Right. That is true. Uh, that is a very good point. But yeah, I mean, both both on the left and the right, there, I think there needs to be more acknowledgement of, of that. You know, that again, it can never happen. And this is what I say to my friends. I have friends who are just like, I want to live in a world without guns. Like, dude, it'll never happen. Like, it, it's not even a matter of whether it should happen or not. And I, I have constitutional issues with going after guns. But it's like, none of it matters. None of it matters in terms of what you think it should or shouldn't be. It's just what it is and it isn't. And the is is, we're stuck with all these guns here, whether people like it or not, and, you know, how that proves to be. And, again, in a much more volatile situation in America, where as much as, again, there's been a lot of rhetoric in the last year or so, and it happened at the time of uh, the riots last summer, about are we potentially teetering into... Civil War, you you look at what happened with January 6th, and it's easy to make too much of this, in in the one sense, but in the whole thing of, like, we're, we're seeing this go to places that we haven't, at least this generation hasn't seen it go to. The 60s saw a lot of stuff, the 60s saw political assassinations, there was a lot of ugliness then, but we're talking about a level of ugliness that we haven't seen since then, culminating in everything that happened On January 6th Uh, and and again just the specter of the Capitol being overrun in the fashion that it was, uh, the the, the people there chanting uh, hang Mike Pence, I mean it's it's pretty clear uh, what they thought they were there for and it's a thing where the the fact that this subsequently, you talk about living in unprecedented times, the fact that it went to impeachment in a lame duck period and then subsequently Mm -hmm. a trial afterwards I mean, look, I kind of go back and forth on the whole thing of when somebody's out of office, can you do this? I mean, it is unprecedented, at least on the presidential level. I will say, I mean, on the fa- if you're just looking at the facts of the matter, I think it's pretty clear incitement. I think there's a defensible case to be made that somebody's a private citizen and whatever, but I mean, on, on the facts of the matter of how this came to be, we know how this came to be. We heard the likes of Rudy Giuliani saying, trial by combat. I mean, this is, this yeah. is, a, this is a layup as far as how this came to be.
1: Yeah, no, and, and, and really, though, I mean, Trump is the, the immediate cause, the proximate cause. Yes. But it goes back a generation. You yeah. know, it goes back to Rush Limbaugh. You Who know, just I was just reading a very good, um, a very good take on Rush in uh, in Slate magazine, Slate.com, Okay, um, looking at you know um, one of the things Rush never really engaged the other side. Right, he never really talked about the arguments the other side had. All he did was functionally name call, right? Yeah, one way or another, libtards, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it was not an, an, an honest, you know, um, what am I trying to say? It wasn't an honest exchange in the sense that we've been trained as the way that we're supposed to do things here. And don't get me wrong, you know, Rush Limbaugh didn't invent anything, right? right. All the way back to father Coughlin in the thirties. Right. But, um, you know, there's this othering of your opponents, yeah. you know, t- turning them into something other than, Uh, Someone with whom you have an honorable difference. And that has sunk deep into this culture. Um, And, you know, Fox News, I mean, my God, like I said, Tucker Carlson is just lying every night. You know, Sean Hannity, I don't know whether he believed that the election was stolen from Trump. I suspect that he did, right? You know, these guys live in their own little media universe.
0: Right. But
1: I know for damn sure that he profits off of it. Yes. And that is ugly and that is just deeply destructive
0: it is it is and it's one of these things where i i think in terms of it with with rush i mean it's one of these things of like the people who got into him in the last 20 to 25 years when you already had the internet you already had all these other things out there i really don't don't get it but like early 90s look i, I will say you know as, as a youngster you know, it was a thing where when he was on there and talking about a vision of a Republican party that was not just the same old crap but actually stood for something, and in terms of that, when he was a voice that was out there that wasn't doing, at least on a major level, what anybody else was, okay? I was into him for a period of time, and then it was a thing of like, and this is a thing where I know... I have a lot of friends who would be insulted by what I'm about to say. But I'm going to say it anyways because I'm an honest guy. I outgrew him. If you're an issue-oriented kind of a guy, if that's what you care about at most, if you're not a culture war kind of a guy, because I think... That whole thing, and yes, as far back as the early 90s, there were examples of that. I think he was more, he was probably actually more prone to say libtard at that time than maybe later on. <laughs> there was the Chelsea Clinton baiting, there was some of that even then. But it grew more pronounced over a period of time. And and there wasn't even the scintilla of what he was ostensibly for that there was that made him appealing to me back in the day. Because if, for anybody that discovered him early on, it was a thing where... You, you did hear him talking about what he was for as as well as what he was against. And then over a period of time, I, I, I think the real turning point was the George W. Bush years when I think he just had to go along with so much kind of crap, and then after the 06 elections, he was like, well, we don't have to carry water for that crap anymore. I'm like, well, you just said the quiet part out loud. You just admitted that you were a toady, well, you know.
1: I, I might point to the Obama years, too, because... I mean, sure. this is the guy. <laughs> with Rush, the racial subtext was not always subtext; it was quite sure. often text. Right. You know. Yeah. And and you know, when you look at the folks on January 6th, with a Confederate Confederate flags in the capital of the United States of America, the yeah. flags of the traitors. You
0: know. Yeah.
1: Um, you cannot ignore the racial subtext, uh, and yeah, the only thing that's I think the the thing that, you know, gets rid of that in the long run is simply a new generation coming in that is used to a multiracial universe, you know. Exactly. Um, but, uh, But people are afraid that their place is being taken. You know, in the society that I grew up in, East Texas, a white man was better than all women and any black person. Right. Yeah. And feminism and racial equality threaten that. And when you feel like, you know, your opportunities are being constricted and, you know, you're afraid of losing what you have, you know, Trump supporters were not typically poor working class. Right. A lot of them were business owners, Right. Right. people who are afraid of losing what they have. Um, and then you've got, you know, an entire media universe that is profiting off of telling you that these people are coming for your guns or your money or your welfare or whatever. Like one of the uh, a study that jumped out at me was and um, uh, when they're surveying uh, uh, older people about education funding, if the, they are in a district where the children are browner than the old people. Mm -hmm. The older people do not support education funding as much. much. But if they're in a district where the old people are white and the kids are white, they do support education funding. And that just, that has stuck with me because of the the deep dynamic that it reveals. That, you know, I don't think you can talk about the success of a Rush Limbaugh without talking about racial resentment.
0: Yeah, I mean, and and that's the thing where, and again, and part of me... It is a little bit uncomfortable as we're sitting here on the day that he passed away. I mean, it's a thing where yeah, I'm comfortable that so we how have many en-
1: people that I- he mock on the tape. Hey, oh,
0: Okay, okay, but I mean that, that is is that is that a reason to do the same? But I'm just saying I'm comfortable with where we're at. We're having a nuanced mm-hmm. discussion about the man. There's not like I saw a thing earlier on Twitter uh, that I uh, remember somebody was like, "Well, Confederate flags must be at half staff today." You know, we're, we're not.
1: That's pretty good. Though. Not, <laughs> I I won't
0: I won't admit whether or not I chuckled or not because I I would I would not be a good person if I admitted the truth of that. Well, but uh, you know, and, and, but but you
1: know that's the thing with Rush is that he was funny. And, yeah, um, he might have laughed
0: at that. Who knows? He might have laughed yeah, at that. Yeah. yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And a lot of people, and honestly, I was talking to a black woman in D.C. Uh, back six or eight months ago. Um, I was sitting outside at a place, you know, quarantine, outdoor seating. And uh, she was there on a date. And, uh, you know, my friend and I were chatting with the two of them. And uh, her date was astonished. This is a black woman in her, her 30s, probably, in D.C. Um, saying that she liked Trump because she thought Trump was funny, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that goes. And Rush Limbaugh had a similar kind of appeal. I have friends who don't particularly ideologically agree with with Rush, but they would listen to him a lot because he was entertaining. Well, you know
0: what? And here's the thing, too. And I'm glad you mentioned that because. The, I don't know how much it did to help Trump do at least marginally better with, with the black population than was uh-huh. expected at the election here, but the whole thing laid in the campaign, and my thing was, all along, as as a Rand Paul guy, I thought he uh-huh. should have been out there beating the drum on all the stuff he did signing the thing that Van Jones helped push, the whole uh-huh. prison reform thing. That, to me, I is what Trump, Trump, Trump should have run on that, but he was of two minds on that issue and didn't want to run on that, but... The whole thing of like putting out some of the, the, these macho black rappers out there, like that might have actually worked because it's a thing. He was trying to tap into something that you're talking about there a cultural respect for a guy who's got balls and is funny and whatever. And, again, I'm not I'm not going to make the broad brush uh, thing here that that's necessarily bigger in the black community than the white community. I don't know. I haven't seen studies on it. But the whole thing of, like, going for the macho-slash-funny appeal, that is something that both of them have, and that is something that allowed Trump to punch above his weight, even with all the mistakes that he had and the self-owns and everything like that that I keep saying to all my Trump-loving friends when they cry about how it went, that first cry about... Uh, all the mistakes that he made in the course of all this. And before we get to, to Biden's stuff here, because we're talking about basically more or less this transition period from <laughs> Biden, yeah. and we will get to him eventually. But it, I mean, it is kind of fitting Joe Biden being an afterthought in the pres- in conversation because he is sort of president afterthought. Uh, basically, but you know, this is, I have a funny
1: feeling that on a policy front, Joe Biden is going to be the most consequential president in a very long time.
0: Probably good for you and bad for me if that's the case, but, uh, I I think it'll
1: be good for you. You just might like, not like it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, the two, the two are not always the same thing.
1: I'll I'll admit
0: that the two are not always the same Colin Delaney, but, uh, I would say that's because I'm principled, and I look for what's more than in it for me, but what's in it for the country. But that's that's me getting up on my I height. I am going uh say, yes.
1: though, uh, I think that a lot of the things Biden are going to do, you're not going to like ideologically, <laughs> but are going to benefit everybody inside our borders. We can talk about that. Well, yes, yes,
0: exactly. But this is, the whole thing with, with, with Trump... That, that somehow or another it feels fitting that we're recording today. We didn't know this was going to be the day that Rush Limbaugh passed away, although we knew he was on a very short time, because it, it feels like... I think we thought that the impeachment and then the Senate trial was sort of Trump's final coda, but today actually feels more like that. It feels oh, more...
1: interesting. I hadn't thought that way. Yeah, yeah
0: but I mean, it because... We, we thought it kind of came to an end a couple days ago, and then there was the thing, I think it was now yesterday, where Trump put out the angry statement denouncing Mitch McConnell. And this is a thing where I'm going to make a very, very nuanced argument about this from my paleocon okay. position of, I object gravely, gravely to the lionizing of the likes of Adam Kinzinger, the Cheneys, etc., because... The, the, the combining animating thread among so many of them is that they are neocons that never liked that Trump was trying to get us out of the permanent wars in the Middle East here. Aside from the Iran policy, that's a notable exception. He was, he was way more... Uh,
1: he was very... yeah, we were pretty was darn it, close. Although, do note that he was the one who pulled back when there was a military strike on the way,
0: basically. That's right, that's right. But So, I mean, he was more Cheney-esque than I was comfortable with, but basically, by and large... Uh, you know, as somebody where, you know, I was I was picking and choosing along the course of the four years any of the stuff I liked. His Middle Eastern policy, by and large, was one that I did. So this whole thing now, and nobody talks about this in the media, this, this lionizing of the brave folks who are standing up to Trump. Like, in the case of ones who aren't avowed neocons, like we got one from our state, Anthony Gonzalez, and you know, no offense. He just kind of seems like an empty suit to me. Ex Ohio State football player who got elected, mouthing platitudes. I've never, I've, I've not been a, not a fan or a detractor of his. He just sort of exists, I guess, to me. So that's not a guy I'm directing venom at. I'm not directing venom at everybody that voted against Trump on both of these things here. But the media. Is performing a very, very dangerous misservice in elevating some of these neocons when, to the when point you say of being media, martyrs. Which media?
1: Which media are
0: you talking? I about? mean, just about everywhere. Everywhere you turn, it's
1: oh my god, Liz Cheney should be the next president.
0: Uh, you I, know,
1: I don't think we're watching. The, I mean, I'm even watching CNN. I'm watching CNN more than I ever have because okay. my parents watch them a lot. MSNBC, but, um, uh, uh, even there. Um, yeah, there's some lionizing going on, but nobody's talking like that.
0: <laughs> I mean, well, okay, I may be exaggerating for effect, but this whole thing of like, you know, Liz, Liz Cheney needs to be returned to Congress to so that there's a, a counterpoint, there's a bulwark to all these dangerous forces. I mean, that that that's that's baloney. I hope she loses. Seat next time around because she's a dangerous neocon. She likes permanent Mm -hmm. war. I was so happy that Cynthia Loomis was the one that went into the Senate instead of her because Cynthia Loomis is a foreign policy realist of the kind that I uh, respect, and that's why Liz Cheney doesn't like her. There's this entire thing now, and, and I would say too, as they're doing that, they're trying to present Liz Cheney as. The, the kind of moral counterpoint to all this Marjorie Taylor Greene stuff. I mean, you might not agree with me on this, but isn't this the media like desperate to, to, like, they're in Trump withdrawal, right? Like, how can we, how can we still, how can we push the outrage buttons in people's heads? Oh, this crazy broad from Georgia who talks about uh, secret Jewish space lasers. I mean, this, this whole thing of like, you know, we got to find somebody to replace him on the whole outrage kind of a thing. When she and the other pistol pack and mama from Colorado ought to be left okay. in the they ought to be left in the obscurity that they deserve to be in, and instead it's the media elevating them, it's the media ele- basically as hate symbols. It's the media elevating Liz Cheney as a saint because she's supposed to be the counterpoint. I just find the the coverage of all this stuff to be rancid. Everything is still Trump obsessed and only viewed through the prism of Trump and that just really bothers the crap out of me. It might not bother Again, you as there much. There
1: is no the media. There are thousands of individual news outlets, all of which have their own editorial policies New York Times, Washington Post, about CNN, what the MSNBC. New York Times is writing about. Yeah. Complain about what the New York Times is writing about. Okay. But there is no the media. I am part of the media. You are part of the media, right? <laughs> yes. No, seriously. Yes. Um, uh, uh, to me, it does a disservice to say that there is a single thing because it creates the media as a thing that does things. And that's just silly. Believe me, I have plenty of disagreements with CNN. Um, but, there, you know, when it comes to someone like Bovert, uh, she's in the news a lot less than Marjorie Taylor Greene, yes. because Marjorie Taylor Greene is louder.
0: Right.
1: Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene has, doesn't have policy people, she has press people. Just right. like... Um, Oh, what was her name? But Michelle Bachman did, you know, uh, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene is getting attention because she wants attention. And then, you know, um, uh, why is local news fires, crime and weather and sports? Because that's what people pay attention to. If it bleeds, it leads. Right. Right. Um, You know, CNN. Well, well. You know, I was going to say they're going to. You know, the biggest uh, um, uh, media outlet that's suffering from Trump's departure isn't a mainstream one. It's Fox News. They're the ones that have plummeted.
0: Well, oh yeah, Newsmax also definitely.
1: Well, I I think Newsmax and One America picked up You know, have have picked up a lot from Fox. I've tried to watch One America. It's fairly amusing, but uh, woo, they're kind of out there. Um, but, uh, but, you know, um, I, I just, I think it's really disingenuous, honestly, to say that there is a D media, if there are particular stories you don't like, point them out, but like CNN, you know, does not tell MSNBC what to cover, does not tell the Washington Post what to cover. I mean, the Washington Post, uh, with Bezos's money behind it the volume of content that they put out is kind of astonishing to me. Well, And the number
0: of things that they are able to write about, is it just blows me away. I mean, you know, point well taken as far as that goes. But, I mean, on the whole thing of Marjorie Taylor Greene, one lone nut job in a district there, who, by the way, I think it's probably the adjoining district represented by Hank Johnson Who's the same guy, isn't he? That said that Guam might capsize if we have too many military things there. So I mean, I don't know. I don't remember
1: that one, but that's great. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah,
0: up. it was. Yeah, he he made some kind of bad slip of the tongue on that, and it was a. It's it's on YouTube. I'm, I'm paraphrasing it, but I mean, she's one nut job out of 435. You don't see a media agenda out there, the number of clicks and stories and whatever on her. Of, you must hate Marjorie Taylor Green. Why don't we deprive her of the oxygen she's looking for? That's what I'd like to see, particularly as somebody on the right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but 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 no, must get somebody to replace Trump. Must get somebody to push the outrage buttons in people's heads. Well,
1: then uh, perhaps the Republican Party or the conservative movement might want to come up with somebody else who can get attention.
0: Well, you know, you again, know, uh, uh, uh,
1: <laughs> they. The right-wing noise machine created her. Yeah. Now you got to live with the consequences. Yeah. You know? Not that you were part of the noise machine, well, but you know what I mean. The, you know, it's it's that old, I, all through, you know, with Trump, I constantly said, you know, going back to the Bible, you have sown the wind, you shall reap the whirlwind. Well, You know, you you create a media ecosystem and a social media ecosystem that rewards the most outrageous, then the most outrageous rise to the top.
0: Well, and, and to, to any of my friends who have, you know, I, I've had some real, you know, conversations, I, I, I've gotten heated over the last year when people have, you mm-hmm. uh, you know, tried to in their instance, uh, in their mind, praise me for you know being moderate because I sound reasonable. I'm like I regard moderate as unprincipled. I regard moderate as let's just split the difference on everything. Don't ever call me moderate. I have strong right, beliefs. With you, buddy. I that yeah, I have strong beliefs, very very strong beliefs. They would put me pretty well on on the right there. And uh, the thing of it is is. Everybody now that thinks I'm a squish because I talk this way about Trump, it's what they've done is, because, and I've talked about this with you on the show before, I mean, as far as the battle to shrink government, all these things, culturally, so many of these wars are lost, and nobody on the right can basically admit that. So what it is, is you have a definable thing. Now, Trump offered a definable goal, which is just owning the libs. And that's basically all, right. all it is. We're going to define everything as how much can we piss off people on the left. We're not going to talk about policies or anything like that. It's all going to be just uh, you know, own the libs, liberal tiers, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, which is kind of ironic based on the way the last election went. But it's a thing where for, for a guy who was uh, one of the biggest spenders in American history, if not the biggest, the most, and I realize this is completely by default, the most pro-LGBTQ Republican president ever. I mean, this is the guy that you're twisting yourself into being a right-wing lunatic to defend. And I'm not, you know, I'm just saying that to point out that Trump himself is not what you would call a right-wing lunatic on policy. But we've defined sure. we've defined being hardcore as defending a guy who is. For all intents and purposes, in no way hardcore. I mean, that's that's yeah. what it is. It's moving the goalposts to a cultural kind of a thing of pissing off people on the left, and that's yeah, all that this is about. It's,
1: it's, yeah, we've talked about this before. Yes, yeah. you know, I, I, I have been fascinated with this idea of tribalism for a couple of decades now. Right. That that you know, so many of the things that we do, not just in politics, but as humans you know, tie back to this, you know, desire to be part of a group and yep. to live up to what the group expects and that kind of thing. But, you know, the the basic policy ideas that have animated the Republican Party for a generation are not popular, yeah. right? Um, you can't win elections on a lot of Republican policies anymore. Um, you know, uh, the gay rights is a great example. Um, yeah, you know the the uh, uh, universal health care is a good example. You know whether whatever mechanism you use, people broadly support so many of these things when you you know do opinion polling. So all you have left is tribalism at that point, and you know you're i suspect you know the democrats have had to, three times in a row now a democrat has had to come in and clean up after a republican president and uh uh clinton got credit for it obama absolutely did not um i have a funny feeling that deserved or not there's going to be a biden boom next year there is so you know we look at uh, all the people who are being hurt by the you know the, the pandemic but there are, uh, you know, if you're a white-collar worker, you probably have not lost your job, right? right. And there are a lot of uh, blue-collar workers who haven't either, but they haven't been able to spend money on things, right? right? You know, they can't go to, out to eat, can't go on vacation. A lot of people have even been putting off things like buying cars, right. you know? So there is going to be this massive pent-up demand, um, and I have a suspicion, one, I think we're going to have a massive party later this year. But um, uh, I think into next year, there's going to be a real economic boom. Um, and one thing, it's going to get a lot of people back into the labor force, which is good. But it might also keep the Democrats from getting hammered in the midterms, like, you know, the president's party always does. Yeah. We shall see. And whether you, again, whether you think Biden deserves credit for that or not, He's get
0: it. Well, that's the way it goes. That's realpolitik, And again, listen: if the Democrats withstand it in the midterms, it wouldn't be completely unprecedented because what we've just been through with the pandemic is one of those 9/11 type things. And the oh, that's 9/11, good point.
1: yeah, good analogy. Yes,
0: yeah. the 9/11 are stuck to Bush long enough that the Republicans actually gained in the midterms in 02. So it, it's basically right place, right time. Politically on some of these things, they wouldn't shock me at all. I don't take for granted that the Republicans are going to finish the job and take back Congress in 2022.